Hello and welcome to the Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist and I'm the online editor at the Strad. Today's episode is all about the solo violin music of Izai. And I'm putting it out there straight away. I don't know much about the solo violin music of Izai. I did mention I'm a cellist. Here to enlighten me, this episode is violinist Jack Liebeck, who's recently recorded all six solo sonatas. We spoke about the difference between playing the music of Izai, Bach and Paganini, and the challenges of performing such a monumental work, including how a microphone can be a musician's worst critic. Just listen back to the sound of your own voice. Here it is. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. So we're here to talk about the six solo sonatas by Izai that you've recently recorded and being released in October. The main thing I know about Izai is that it encompasses and it represents an evolution of musical techniques and expressions of the time, each one dedicated to a violin contemporary of Izai's. So first of all, you know, tell me about the challenges of manoeuvring through the journey of various techniques and expressions, even personalities. You know, how do you find the music within six separate pieces? Well, each sonata has very much got its own voice, its own style, and that comes from the, the fact that they were dedicated to each a different violinist of the time that Izai uh, admired. So that, that's, the, that's one way, you know, the first step is to sort of jump in and find out what the sort of dedication informs uh, in terms of the playing. But I think it's just when you're preparing for these things, you've just got to live with it and keep on almost like tasting the flavor of the music and seeing how it cha- uh, you know how it makes you feel and how what you can find within it that's why it's you know you want to really take your time to get the music ready for these recordings as well to really give it time to to sort of steep like a <laughs> cup of tea um, that's a bad analogy you know these recordings generally are mountains i mean the one i did before was schoenberg and brahms concertos and again there's you know two big mountains to climb so i, I do like these kind of like um, Big projects, and I, you know, we had uh, a few days to record, so that was nice. It, it was a, a luxury rather than having to do it in two, which is sometimes what happens. As a cellist, you know, what I know about Isai sonatas, based on what I've heard from colleagues, is that they're just technically so fiendishly difficult. From your personal experience, what's one of the biggest challenges that you've had to face in recording these, technically? It's a mixture, because they are fiendishly difficult on the one hand, but on the other hand, they are written for violinists to play. So if you've got the technique that is up to it, it feels incredible to play this music because it's tailor-made for that high-end technique that one right. has developed yeah. over the years. So in a way, it fits the violinist's hand like a glove. It benefits from all those things that we spend many years honing, all the, the luxurious movements around the instrument, the softness, the spaciousness, the time-taking in terms of movements. It, and, and, you know, I have a class at the Academy... Uh, that I work with um, and it, all of the stuff that we're working on as violinists to develop is the things that makes Izai work when you're playing it. So it is difficult but at the same time if your technique is well sorted out it is amazing to play. It's almost like wearing a tailored piece of clothing uh, because it fits so well. 
the way I would see it is that it's a culmination because it's such a huge broad representation of all these techniques and expressions you know someone said that Isai's music contains the past the present and also the future of violin playing it's a culmination of all these things so that because it's so idiomatic and as you say if your technique's in the right place then it becomes incredibly rewarding yeah I think there's a difference between for instance in my in my mind there's a difference between Isai Bach and Paganini so Paganini was written the Caprices was written for Paganini to play right he didn't write them for other people to play he didn't write them saying oh I'm going to dedicate this to so and so it was like look at my ridiculous hands and what I can do with them and then we as violinists have to sort of get around the fact that it wasn't written for our hands Right. That, right. That. And so, you know, at times you're doing stuff that feels horrible uh, under the hand and, and uh, very uncomfortable. And we strive to make it comfortable. That's our work over the years. Bach as well is amazing music, but it's not written for comfort. In fact, it can be very, very uh, uncomfortable to play, to bring it, to pull it off. But Isai never feels like that. Isai, from my perspective as a violinist, always just felt like if the fundamentals of my practice and the fundamentals of the way I'm getting around the instrument are right, it will reward me. It's just, it's like a Rolls Royce violin music. It's just perfect. Yeah, it just, it runs smoothly. I mean, there are some bumps in the road, but those bumps, <laughs> if you have the right principles of how to play, they, they, they can be overcome. Yeah. Wow. I love it. That's great. You know, and so I know in the past you've recorded one of the Isai sonatas, um, but just one, you know, how did it feel now recording all six of them like what was your approach did you do them all in one go or did you take your time to reflect upon each one i actually we recorded them in a funny or i can't remember what the order we recorded them in but um i know I, there's two of them that i played a lot in concert so there was the, the first and the third of the sonatas the ones i played most so i think we left those to a time when I knew I had the other one sort of like in the can. And I had some time at the end to go over things because, you know, when you, when you perform something, when you put yourself under that pressure to play, it changes your performance. So that if you then come back to it two days later, you can play it with a, a slightly different perspective as well. So uh, it, I, I think we came back with some time at the end to just go over a few things. I'm not sure how much of it was use, useful at the end for the producer, but... You just have to be very, very cool and collected in the sessions. And one of the things about recording solo violin is uh, you do suddenly feel very alone when you're recording, <laughs> where the, all of the um, camaraderie you have with your colleagues is just like, it's just you in a, uh, in a big room on your own with your thoughts. So you can get a little bit flustered at times. And then, but you know, a good producer has recorded many of the solo violin or solo cello, whatever recordings, and knows exactly the psychology of what's going on. With the, with the player in the in the in the room. So um, from my perspective, I, I just try and remember what it's like to perform. And a recording, in a way, gives you all of the freedom to try all sorts of different things, which may work, may not work. But you you can you have the space. That's what it it gives you is the space to experiment with different ways of playing. It's not actually the other way around, which in how it could feel, which is, oh, my, you're suddenly in a straitjacket, I've got to do it right, or I've got to do this or that. It gives you some freedom, and that's, if you can try and enjoy that, that's, it's a magical process. Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? Because I guess there's always that common feeling of when you're recording, thinking, I can do it again. But, you know, 
then you run yourself into the danger of trying to replicate the same thing over and over again. Whereas would you feel that with each take you were bringing something new? Yeah, each take, I feel that that's what I try and do. I'm In my mind, I've got, uh, in this case, it's Andrew Keener, the producer. I visualize sort of like playing to his headphones in the other room and just trying to play for him and trying different things to be free because that's the thing that it affords you is that, that, that you can try something and if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter, it doesn't get used. There's a little... Um, thing I've found over the years about recording is that, you know, the chance that you make a mistake, you play a wrong note or something like that, that there's a certain sods law that means that will that will make it into the first edit. <laughs> so it's like, that's why you've got to be really careful though sometimes not to make a silly mistake because you're like, that one's definitely going to end up being in there. So. Yeah. It's also that kind of thing where it might be a huge, massive blunder in your mind, but, you know, in someone else's ears, they might not have even noticed, which is why it gets used. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No. It's um, we, and that's what happens actually when you record on your own. But, but that thing, everything becomes super magnified. You know, you do have to take a breather and go. It's fine. Everything's good. Just listen. Even when you listen back occasionally to something and it sounds, you can hear everything. Suddenly, you can hear more than you hear in the hall because in the hall you've got all the reverberation. Uh, but when you listen back and it's you know the microphones are quite close, you can get into a slightly dangerous headspace. Uh, but you have to just have faith and, and uh, that's why you, you work with the producer that you get on with because you can mm. trust their opinion. Have some space. Obviously, it takes quite a long time between the recording sessions and you're receiving your... And usually in that time, you've kind of forgotten about all the um, micro trauma yeah. you've been through in the sessions. <laughs> <laughs> micro trauma. Well, that's what they say, isn't it? The microphone is the musician's worst critic. Absolutely, yeah. So I've got um, one Final question that I'd like to ask you, and you know, as mentioned before, each sonata is dedicated to one of Isai's violin contemporaries. Which one do you connect with the most? Ooh, good question. The one that surprised me the most was the fifth sonata, Aurora, uh, the the dawn at the beginning. It's that crick boom. Yeah, I'm probably saying that name completely wrong. <laughs> and when I was about eighteen, I learned all of the sonatas in one year, and then. You know, took a couple of them, which I then performed and carried on playing, but then promptly forgot about a, a couple of them. And this was one that I totally forgotten about when I came back to it uh, before the recording. I was, it took me a while to understand it. It's it's strange on the surface, but you can really hear the sort of like the sun coming up and maybe a countryside scene, some trees creaking in the distance and stuff. It's very dreamy. The fifth took a while to, to sort of like find my voice for it. On the surface, it's quite strange music. It's not got this kind of melodic structure that we're used to. It's more atmosphere for quite a long time. But then the thing is that the first movement then builds to this amazing moment when obviously the sun is coming up and the power of the sun. And that's also what I just find fascinating about Isaiah's music is that it's a solo violin, but somehow it's unbelievably powerful at the same time it's like one single person creating the universe from the from the one instrument so it's tremendously powerful stuff you know i think it's almost as powerful as like the schoenberg that i recorded before with a huge symphony orchestra but uh, just yeah. one person well it's a testament to the skill of the uh, composer as you're mentioning before it's just like a rolls royce right? yeah yeah it, it was um, incredible pieces i always knew that at some point i'd have to record them uh, and you know it's a mountain to climb so you go I'll do it at some point I'll do it at some point and then with the whole lockdowns I was like 
okay, if I don't do it now. <laughs> okay, so this was like your pandemic project. When everyone else was making sourdoughs, you were like, okay, I'm going to record the Isai Sonatas. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw a couple of colleagues making some recordings and I was like, oh yeah, I should probably do this too. So it's time to, <laughs> it's time to, um, and you actually just have to pull a trigger at some point about these things. And then once you've pulled that trigger, it's like, okay, there's a lot of work to do. It was really good, good, good work to do. Fabulous. Well, Jack, thanks for joining me today on the podcast and enlightening a cellist all about Izai. Pleasure. That was Jack Liebeck. Check out the show notes for details of his new album of Izai's works out on the 8th of October on Orchid Classics. Right now, you're hearing Jack playing Sonata Number no. 5, as mentioned earlier in our chat. And don't forget to check out thestrad.com for the latest news and articles on all things to do with string playing. And if you like the look of all those wonderful articles, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. Don't forget, we have 50% off an online subscription for students. Check the show notes for the link. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Bye! I mean, bye!